Welcome to the 418th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist and endurance athlete living in Southwest Florida. Thank you for listening. So today I'm going to rant a little bit about the state of the healthcare um, in this new year. I've been running into various snags and observations, so um, sit back, a, a little bit of a rant. I hope I can bring it back around to a positive note at the end. Meanwhile, um, getting ready for a race, February 9th is the Rocky Hoka 50 miler. So one more long run weekend and then taper. So kind of looking forward to that. Then we have the Treasure Coast Marathon. We're going to have a crowd of plant-based people there. Um, still time to join us. Uh, it's Treasure Coast Marathon in Stewart, Florida. And then it will be um, not much going on until the summertime and the 50-miler in Leadville, Colorado. So a lot of work to be done. I have been pulling my tire and I've also been working on my cadence. Um, I am somewhat of a lazy runner and my cadence will slow down into the high 160s and it's, you know, kind of the diesel poking along. Um, so since um, Born to Run 2 has come out in my interview with Chris McDougall, I've been following some of his drills in the book. Uh, he and Eric Orton, uh, Orton uh, is the coach. And um, things are going good. Uh, long run last weekend, 18 miles with a high cadence, managed to keep it all the time, recovered really good from it, so a lot less stress on the legs, the feet, with a high, easy cadence, walking on, um, you know, trying to less ground contact time, thinking of songs that have the 880 beats per minute, so um, it's been good, so I'm going to keep practicing, I think that'll be great for going down hills and trails, and so um, that's another thing that, you know, it's... Uh, I'm going to keep working on so that come Leadville time, hopefully uh, that'll, that'll pay off. I am practicing what I preach with the mitochondrial growth, um, both you know running in a lower heart rate zone, but also strength training. So I'm still doing my pull-up um, challenge. Have not got to an unassisted pull-up, but um, kind of back focus more into the daily routine of how to get to a pull-up um, since Christmas time, so it took a little bit of a break. I never quit, but um, you know, not as diligent at trying to, to get to that level. So those are, are certainly goals uh, for 2023 that I'm, that I'm keeping at. Our Build Your Health Challenge is nearing the end. We're on, uh, well, day 25, and uh, things are going good still. People, a lot of good feedback. People are doing well. Um, I'm anxious to look and see when we send out our survey and get feedback for people when they complete the whole 31 days, what they like most about it. We are planning another one in April. Uh, this one will be Navigate Your Health. So um, looking for feedback uh, from anybody that listens to the podcast, jamie at drdelaney.com, um, to see, you know, are you more interested in mobility, strength, nutrition, combo? I kind of like the combo myself because it uh, breaks it up. So does Sophie. We have introduced a balance class into the practice on Mondays, which I am leading the charge, and, and we're having a lot of fun. Um, we've made some uh, balance beams out of pallets and have some other various um, obstacles that we're using, and uh, I, I think it's of, of great benefit. Uh, some 
amazing, the, you know, don't use it, you lose it, mobility, uh, balance, strength. Uh, so it's, um, we're all having a good time uh, learning together. So uh, really enjoying that in the class. And then we post the video, we actually zoom it, and then we're posting the videos up later on our members only website. So, so that's going real, uh, real good. We also have a yoga class in the office on Wednesdays. We have a yoga instructor come in to do, and of course I do the nutrition class on Fridays. So um, we got it going this year with, um, you know, focus on wellness instead of sick care. So medical care has taken a huge change since I finished medical school in 1987 and finished my cardiology fellowship in, uh, I believe it was 1993. And um, I'm very grateful to all of my professors, um, especially the ones that taught me physical examination the, and the ones that taught me ethics uh, and problem solving because there's not a lot of that that goes on. And I think most people realize that now and um, there's a lot of things popping up, you know, do-it-yourself healthcare. Um, one of the things are wearable devices, so you can wear a monitor that monitors your glucose 24-7. And, of course, you can get a couple free ones, and then they charge it for you. You can pay for a service for um, somebody to tell you what your glucose is and what you should eat, uh, even if they don't know you or know anything about your past medical history. You can order your own blood test, and you can sign up for a program that uh, somebody somewhere will give you a readout on what your blood test abnormalities are and tell you what you should do about them to try to fix yourself. Uh, of course, you can always use the Google machine uh, to Google your symptoms and try to figure out what's going on with yourself. And, you know, there are a million different uh, treatments that uh, may not involve pharmaceuticals that some people will give a try. The problem with all of that is asking the right question. Just like anybody that's done a Google search, if you don't know what to ask, then you can get into some trouble. A lot of uh, facilities and uh, wellness, um, I'm not sure how to put it, wellness um, businesses, I should say, uh, have gone to ordering every test known to man. So we'll CT scan you, MRI you, and do every blood test that we can and see if something comes up that's wrong. I liken that to um, plugging your car into a diagnostics and having the, the machine tell you what's wrong. The problem is that there's a lot more interactions and biochemical interactions and feedback loops in the human body than there is in a Ford or a Chrysler, so it's not quite that easy. Um, people eat a lot of different things and have a lot of different exposures as opposed to what an automobile is exposed to. So um, it's just a little bit more difficult. I always get a little bit irritated when I see, you know, the plumbing doctor or whatever, and it's like, uh, not quite the same when you have an inanimate object as far as, uh, as opposed to something with as many moving parts as a human in interaction. So... Um, not quite as easy as it would be just to order a bunch of tests and see which ones are abnormal. One problem that comes with that, especially blood tests, is, you know, what happens if a test is abnormal? Um, what do you do with the result? 
Um, sometimes abnormal blood tests mean something. Sometimes they mean nothing. Sometimes they're normal in response to something that's happened. If you've had some sort of therapy in the past, you may have an abnormal feedback loop that makes something elevated more than others. Uh, again, um, it's not that easy just to look at an abnormal blood test out of context and see what, what it is that should be done. That being said, you can save a lot of money ordering your own blood test, especially if you have a high deductible. But I would encourage you to work with your physician and say, you know, um, what blood test do I need? And you can order and you can pay cash for them. Um, there's deals with Quest and whatever. And then you can go over the results with your, your physician, somebody that actually knows you. Hopefully it's your physician. Unfortunately, a lot of physicians are on the clock these days because they've been bought by big organizations that have them see so many patients per hour, and if they're not being productive as far as ordering their own tests for their own labs uh, and seeing enough patients, then they kind of get in trouble. So your time with a physician is limited to what's wrong with you right now. Uh, you might see an uh, ancillary personnel, um, a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, and they may um, see you early on and maybe discuss it with the physician, maybe not. But more often than not, medicine has come down to algorithms. Um, you know, put in your symptoms and this is the medicine that you get. Um, again, it comes down to asking the right questions and having a physical exam to kind of put things together and so the traditional way, uh, back in the old days, um, we would look at someone's past medical history, all the things that have happened to them up to the point in their life, uh, surgeries, procedures, medications, talk about their current symptoms, look at their current medications and their current problem, and depending on the physical exam, come up with a list of possibilities. And depending on those possibilities, you would order tests to narrow down those possibilities. So, um, for instance, with chest pain, I've talked about that in the past, that if you have chest discomfort that is uh, um, pressure in the center of your chest when you exert yourself and it goes away when you stop, then chances are it's coronary artery disease. If it happens when you move your arms, it might be musculoskeletal discomfort. But sometimes it can be confusing because esophageal spasm is in the esophagus is really close to the heart, and so it can get confusing. Uh, my grandmother died of acute indigestion, but it was really a massive heart attack. So when um, people have indigestion, you know, like they did, you know, on some of the TV shows in the old days, it's like, oh, I'm having the big one, but it really would be indigestion. Um, you know, so sometimes it can be rib or, or you know, um, um, cartilage type issues. So there can be a whole lot or even nerve issues. There can be a whole lot of things in the differential. So then you figure out what you do to kind of figure out what, you know, what tests are best to order. I wouldn't order a whole body scan if somebody had chest pain. I wouldn't go directly to a heart catheterization if somebody had chest pain. I wouldn't prescribe a medication right up front just with a diagnosis of chest, just chest discomfort. So you know, there's, there's more than that that goes into it. Um, some people are now going to the pharmacy to get uh, their medical care. Um, I would guess most of it is um, for the vaccines uh, and then the, you know, colds and flu bugs of sort um, and viruses and things like that. So if you give a symptom to the pharmacist, then the pharmacist will 
uh, run an algorithm, you know, again, plug you in and give a list of medications because a pharmacist is going to get medications because it can't give anything else because it can't do tests or procedures. So you get a medication, and if you happen to get better, then maybe the medication was it. If you happen to get worse, maybe it wasn't. You get a different medication or perhaps go on for a different test somewhere else. Um, you know, so you can see where I'm going with some of this, that um, we don't trust the medical establishment en enough, um, and the medical establishment doesn't take enough time with people to, to really figure out what's going on. And unfortunately, um, traditional allopathic doctors, people that go to medical school, get the MD, um, most of the therapies are based on testing and pharmaceuticals. And so if you can't handle with the pharmaceutical or procedure, then, you know, it's kind of too late and we don't want to hear about anything else. And we all know about the placebo effect uh, of uh, people that, you know, um, got better despite the sugar pill. That happens in randomized clinical trials as well. So there are a number of people that will get better without anything. And we know in... Um, since I've been practicing medicine um, more focused on nutrition, if you take some offending agents away, the body can heal itself in a lot of instances. Now, all of these things I'm saying are general medical, you know, um, uh, going for the lifestyle diseases for the most part. Um, you know, obviously, if you cut your leg with a chainsaw, hospital is the best place you can possibly go, and you shouldn't Google on how to sew up a chainsaw wound. Um, there are cancers and infections that, you know, do benefit from therapies um, or at least uh, have a good response to, to therapy. So I'm not saying all across the board that medicines are evil and procedures are evil. There's a time and the place, but we way overdo um, therapeutics through pharmaceuticals and procedures. For instance, there was a study just published in the Journal of American Medical Association Switzerland spends 11.3% of its gross domestic product on health care. That is number three um, just behind the U.S. and Germany. They also have a mandatory, uh, mandatory um, insurance for everyone, um, but you can also buy a supplement. So this study looked at cardiovascular procedures uh, from 2012 to 2020, to see whether or not if people that had supplemental insurance, so in addition to their government insurance, got more procedures than people that didn't. And it looked at 590,919 people over that time period, and there were 67,753 Basically, there were 895 additional procedures per 100,000 people in people that had supplemental insurance. So if you had supplemental insurance, you were more likely to get an angioplasty, your left atrial appendage closed with a device, a TAVR, um, you know, which is a partial, um, partially non-invasive aortic valve replacement, a mitral valve clip, a pacemaker, atrial fibrillation, ablation. So if you had a supplemental insurance, you were going to get these extra procedures more. The biggest point to all that is that there was no difference in adverse events, whether you got those procedures or not, or success. So there were no less deaths if you didn't get the procedure, no less hospitalizations, no readmissions difference, 
no um, ICU difference, no ventilator difference. So basically these extra procedures resulted in nothing but extra procedures for people that paid more for a supplemental insurance. That's kind of sad. And I don't think it's near as bad as it is here in the United States. 61% of the procedures performed were elective. Now, remember from past um, podcasts, most elective cardiac procedures do not make people live longer or live better. So this study certainly supported that data. Um, you know, in the old days, if you had, again, maybe she had some chest discomfort, who's going to ask, do a stress test, maybe it's abnormal, get your heart cath, find a blockage, get your angioplasty, um, you're not going to live any longer, live any better. You're going to get a couple new medications. Um, but that's, and probably end up having another procedure and another stent. Because once you get one set of stents, chances are you're probably going to get some more stents. You're at least going to get more stress tests. And you're going to be in the realm for stress tests every year. Just like a cancer patient gets CTs and MRIs every year to look for their cancer coming back. So do cardiac patients get stress tests, look for their coronary artery disease coming back. So if we were so sure about our ability to cure these diseases with stents and bypasses, we shouldn't really have to look every year to make sure it's not coming back. But we want to make sure asymptomatic disease doesn't come back. So again, if we're going to do a procedure, it should be who's going to live longer or live better. But if you're not having symptoms, it's hard to live better. So that's off the table. So we're looking for we're looking for things that come back that may kill you. Um, and we've never been able to really prove that either. So you can see the rabbit hole that we get down. And of course, the fear of a physician, and you know, I've shared that fear, and it's a real fear, and it's legitimate, is that if you miss something and someone has a heart attack after they come in to see you, then it's your fault. It's, they, the lawyer and the jury, they never ask you know, are you still eating bacon? Are you still smoking? Are you still overweight? You know, are you exercising? They don't ask any of that. They just come to the conclusion that you had a disease, the doctor didn't pick it up, and therefore it's the doctor's fault. Um, that's why a lot of people think I'm crazy when I prescribe eating greens for chest pain because people tell me all the time that they're eating their salads and greens, but they're eating a bunch of other things. So what happens if they have a heart attack and they say, well, Dr. Delaney said eat greens and I did eat greens, but yet I still had a heart attack. So obviously it doesn't work. How, how are we going to figure out what they're really eating? There's, uh, you know, we can take, send them to the dentist and have them, you know, look for other things, you know. Um, but um, I have to say that one time I actually called Dr. Esselstyn up because I was early in my plant-based career I was a little nervous about a patient who continued to have chest discomfort despite eating the near-perfect diet, as most people say they do. And um, the first thing he asked me was, um, and it was very blunt, he said, are they fat? And I was like, yes, they're overweight. And he said, well, they're cheating. And I was like, well, it's not that easy to just come and say that. He's like, I know. And he said, um, do they eat out? And I said, well, they're only eating out, you know, maybe once a, once a week. And he said, that's 52 times a year. And, you know, so what he said made a lot of sense. You know, um, we know, and of course, now that I've done this, um, not as long as Dr. Esselstyn has done it, but I've done it uh, several years now and followed people. And the people that do well are typically um, look a certain way. And the people that aren't doing well, they look a certain way as well. And, uh, it, you know, it works. Um, there's been a lot of research done. You know, if you eat more calories than you need, 
um, you got to store them someplace, um, you know, so whatever your reason, um, you still have to store them. So if you're, if you're still overweight, you're eating more calories than, than you need. You can eat all the greens in the world, but if you're still having a steak, um, you're having a lot of inflammation, saturated fat, oxidation that's, that's going to negate any nitric oxide production that you got with your greens. So um, sometimes we get to get half the story, but, you know, um, that's why you have to have a good relationship with your patients so that you can actually sit and have those frank conversations. And it takes a lot of time. And that's what traditional medicine doesn't have uh, because you can't see 40 people in a day and sit and pick, what did you have for dinner last night? Oh, I only had, you know, uh, a little bit of this. And then as, you know, as the conversation, you know, about 20 minutes into the conversation, you might get 50% of what really was going on. So it takes a while and nobody has time for that. You know, back to the do-it-yourself medicine, um, you know, with the Google machine, a lot of people look up medications and, you know, they see all kinds of terrible side effects and, and they don't want part of it. And that's not, most of the time, that's not untrue. And sometimes it's even worse than what you read because, you know, if you're on five or six different medications, chances are nobody has really looked at the interaction of these medications clearly or in a large trial we know that how some medications are metabolized, whether they're metabolized primarily through the liver or through the kidney. And if you get a bunch of medications that are metabolized by the liver, then chances are they're going to interact. Um, if you have bad kidneys or bad liver and you have one of those medications, chances are you're going to get one of those side effects. But still, you know, more things can go wrong than you even expect. However, um, sometimes medications are needed to kind of get you through a, a tight spot. So if your blood pressure is 170 and somebody gives you blood pressure medicine until you can figure out, you know, your nutrition, then the idea would be to take the medication until you can get off of it. And, uh, the, uh, and the goal is to get off of it as quickly as possible by actually addressing what you're doing. So, for instance, I had a person come and were afraid of eye drops for glaucoma because uh, all the side effects for these eye drops... But the person had tuna with mayonnaise, you know, um, and didn't, wasn't worried about the mercury in the tuna, wasn't worried about the cholesterol and fat in the mayonnaise, um, wasn't worried about the salt in the pasta sauce. So, yes, medicines have side effects, and some medicines interact with food even. So, we, you know, you have to look at the whole picture before you throw everything under the bus. No medication has to be forever, um, with the exception of potentially, I guess, a couple uh, when it comes to uh, preventing risk of, of blood clots in someone that's had blood clots or very high potential blood clots. But blood pressure medicines can be um, weaned off. Diabetic medicines can be weaned off. Um, certainly arthritic medicine should be weaned off. There's not one of them that doesn't cause uh, side effects. Pain medications can be weaned off and should be weaned off. Muscle relaxers don't work and antidepressants can be weaned off, but very slowly because all of these medicines are um, not as smart as our bodies are. And so our bodies develop ways around these medications and uh, it can be very hard to get people off of them. So cold turkey stopping medication is also not a good idea. 
we know that a lot of people never fill the prescription they're given in the doctor's office for their 15-minute visit. And if they were giving free samples, then chances of them filling the next one, especially if it's costly, they're not going to. So that's why pharmaceutical industry caught on to that pretty quick. And so they started giving, you know, cards to my medicine only going to cost so much. You know, so it's like it's not costing me anything for the first year. So even though it's a really expensive medicine, I don't have to pay for it. And my insurance is going to pay for it. So it's more likely that people will take their medication if they don't have to take it. But that's not a reason to take medication long term either. Nor is it a reason to get something done just because your insurance company will pay for it. So there's nothing better than the original equipment. So we should do everything we possibly can to keep the original equipment and keep the original equipment working well. There are a lot of alternative procedures that say studies show and uh, even reviewed a uh, procedure for sleep apnea this week that has FDA approval. So, you know, when somebody hears, well, it's FDA approved, it must be okay, they've done tests. Well, it turns out all the tests are done about the safety and effectiveness of this procedure and device was done by the company who makes the device. So are they going to go to the FDA and say, hey, listen, we've got this alternative procedure for sleep apnea that we've, you know, we're going to uh, do all these different things. It has some side effects, but not that bad. And it works most of the time. And it's a good alternative. And, you know, they're, they're not going to say it doesn't work. So you have to be aware about who did the studies and who funds the studies. And that's even more complicated uh, in today's world where pharmaceutical industry funds a lot of their studies device uh, companies fund a lot of their studies. So it's, it's kind of hard to dig through the weeds by yourself and figure out, you know, is this stuff real or not? Um, and it's one reason for my entire practice that I've never jumped on the bandwagon of prescribing a new drug very quickly. Because a lot of times, once the drug is released after it's been through clinical trials, it behaves a whole lot different in uh, the general population with other medications, interactions, and so forth than it did in a controlled environment, uh, in a controlled study, if it truly was. So medicines get recalled. Just this week, um, Merck, which is a large pharmaceutical company, um, got dinged for having nitrosamines in their diabetic uh, medications that contain citagliptin. And citagliptin products are things like Genuvia, Janumet, Steglugin, um, and they're found to have nitrosamines. You may have heard of nitrosamines when it comes to bacon and lunch meats, even turkey lunch meat and ham lunch meat. Deli slices have nitrosamines that are known carcinogens. Uh, it's one case where um, it's actually harder on humans than even rats, so it causes, you know, so the dosage uh, for humans is a, you know, well-known carcinogen. Um, of course, the writers of the columns like, not to worry, not to worry, because um, it can even be in cosmetics or toys or tobacco, motor vehicle emissions, it can even be in beer, so... You know, a little bit in your pharmaceuticals, you know, not to worry. And the FDA has a good idea about how much of this stuff we could have before uh, it's, it really is going to increase our risk of cancer. And turns out that uh, that number is about um, 246 nanograms per day versus 37 nanograms per day. So if you get six times the amount of what the FDA says a day, then you get a little bit increased risk of um, cancer. 
and that can be uh, primarily cancers of GI cancers, so esophagus, colon, lung, kidney, and liver cancer, because you think about that these drugs are metabolized in, in those places the most, so you get the biggest accumulation of, again, metabolic waste, which would be these drugs. So how much is okay, and how much do you get a day? Um, it's kind of hard to tell, because if it's in your lunch meat, and your bacon, and your um, you know, the car you walk by and the tobacco that somebody and the beer you drink. Uh, and uh, Pfizer had a recall on Chantic for nitrosamine, so they had to pull that anti-smoking uh, drug off the market uh, or off the shelves because it was contaminated. Um, in the past, um, the drugs Losartan, Metformin, Ibisartan, Ranitidine have all been dinged for having high levels of nitrosamines. Uh, Losartan and Ibisartan are blood pressure medications. Metformin is a very widely used diabetic medication. Ranitidine is a very widely used heartburn medication. And a lot of times, a lot of people are on all these drugs at the same time. So how do you calculate how many nanograms of nitrosamines did you get from your meds versus your, the food versus everything else? So if it's everywhere or if it's in a lot of your drugs or if you can control one thing, you can control the drugs you ingest by controlling your lifestyle factor. So if you didn't eat lunch meat, you wouldn't get a high salt level. Um, you wouldn't get a high saturated fat intake. So you might be able to get off your blood pressure medicine. So you cut your nitrosamines down um, all over the place. Nitrosamines uh, are different from nitric oxide. Um, in, the, in that paper, they tried to throw greens under the bus, but it's a whole different ballgame. It's how, it, it is interesting, it's how these compounds interact with your gut microbe, but um, arginine is the um, amino acid that's taken in with greens and metabolized with amylase in your gut microbes to make nitric oxide, which is a vasodilator and, very, and harmless, um, as opposed to, in a natural compound, as opposed to nitrosamines, which, again, are carcinogens. So not to worry, you're not going to get cancer from eating broccoli, um, but hang back on that turkey breast because um, that is just as bad as bologna when it comes to nitrosamines. So it's kind of a minefield out there when it comes to healthcare right now. Um, you know, if you're, if you're sick and you rely on somebody else to take care of you, uh, you may get a lot of pharmaceutical drugs that are contaminated with things that cause other problems. And we often see um, people have side effects from a medication. They get another medication for the side effect for the medication, you know. So um, that's not a new thing to, to the world of pharmaceuticals. And people start to accumulate medications and, um, you know, a lot of, of things. Of course, they go to their pharmacist because you can trust your pharmacist. Um, but now you may get more medications from your pharmacist. So what's a girl to do or a boy to do? Um, you know, uh, plant-based nutrition is, I, I think, the best way to go. Um, I'm, I'm still glad that uh, I'm eating my, my plants. So greens, nitric oxide, dilate your arteries. Um, avoiding products made uh, and processed that have a lot of salt and other chemicals added to them. Um, will help lower your blood pressure. If you know what you're eating, you can kind of identify a little bit better um, what you're taking in as far as poison. So 
Uh, somebody told me about these little bagel thins that they eat, you know, so it's a bagel that has the middle chopped out, or I guess, yeah, the middle's chopped out, so you're just eating the ends of the bagel, so it's less calories, but they're bleached, and they had to make salt, because who wants to eat just the skin of a bagel, so, um, you know, there's a laundry list of, of chemicals in them, so if you can decrease your intake to things that you can identify, uh, not a paragraph of chemicals, that's also helpful. One of the biggest things, instead of Googling what you have, the better reason or the better thing to do would be to Google or ask, why do you have what you have? Um, I think that's what we're not doing as physicians near enough of. So instead of just making a diagnosis and following an algorithm of treatment, why do you have high blood pressure? What is causing your knee pain? Why do you have this cancer? Why do some people get it and other people don't? Um, those are the questions that we need to ask. We're not really blaming anybody. We want to know why. And if we know why you have high blood pressure, maybe we can help somebody else that, that has high blood pressure. Um, if it's a, clearly a change um, in the foods we're eating, then why do we keep having these foods? Why are we can continue to expose ourselves to these foods? So ask why, not what, uh, for the most part. Um, a lot of times people have a pain in their knee, but it may be coming from below their knee or above their knee. It may be coming from their foot. Um, but just sticking a knee brace on someone without identifying what might be causing the discomfort might not be the right answer. Um, you know, the same way with, you know, stomach problems. When people have indigestion or gastro gastroesophageal reflux, they weren't born with it. Uh, is it just because their stomach wore out because they're 50 years old, or is it because of what they're eating? Is it because of the oil intake that they're taking in? So perhaps if they changed what they ate, their stomach would get better. So there's a lot of different things that we had if we just ask why instead of just throwing something at it or throwing a test or a procedure at it, we might get, um, at, least we, at least we would give the body time enough to heal while we were thinking about why we actually had it perhaps. It's amazing how simple it works, you know, just taking the offending agent away, eating good, simple foods, exercising. Our life has become too simple. Um, we need to make, you know, there needs to be more work involved in our food preparation, you know, not DoorDash, not pre-made meals, um, not things that are, you know, people eat out of the gas station, for goodness sake, you know, so... If you're somebody that pumps gas and orders dinner at the same time, you're going to set yourself up for, for an unhealthy lifestyle. So I, um, you know, it's, it's okay to walk a little further. Um, as a matter of fact, if everybody walked about an hour and a half a day, um, probably go a long, long way to healing a lot of people. Because um, if you're going to walk an hour and a half a day, chances are you don't want to carry this, the, a big load with you. So you'll, you'll start uh, focusing on a little bit more about what you're eating. Same way with your eating. If you're eating healthy, um, then you're going to want to, um, you know, do a little exercise to help maintain it. I listened to a podcast um, on exercise physiology, and, you know, um, the reason why people do things is, one of the biggest things, is especially strength training, is to look better. And there's nobody that doesn't want to look better. Uh, what better is, you define that. That's an individual thing. But people want to look better and they want to feel better. It's across the board. So 
you know, focusing on looking better and feeling better is a good way to start as far as just adopting some of these simple behaviors and, and taking responsibility for your why things are like they are instead of just finding out what they are, I think is probably the best way to end this today. The good news is the body can heal itself if you give it time, um, if you have some uh, a positive mental outlook on things, and um, just keep it simple. So I'd love to see you in Treasure Coast Marathon, uh, Stewart, Florida. Maybe I could see you in Leadville. Uh, drop me a line, jamie at drdelaney.com. I'd love for you to join one of our challenges to try to get healthier. Uh, you can check out our practice at drdelaney.com. Um, we offer a variety of online services as well where we talk to people. We actually spend time talking to people and getting to know them and helping them to decide what is right for them. So uh, I'd love to work with you, uh, but thank you for listening, and I'll check in next week.